Well, this morning, um, yeah, it's easier when you're doing a series. Everyone knows what to expect. So we're doing First and Second Samuel in the fall, uh, and this is just a summer of where just sort of roll some dice and see what happens. Um, this is going to be um, a sermon much like Nate's last week where he covered the entire book of Genesis. I'm going to be talking about, luckily, a much smaller one, <laughs> Lamentations. I, th- I think it's a, a good time for us to consider this book and, and what it's about and why it was written and, and what we could learn from it. So this is going to be um, a, a, one sermon on the book of Lamentations called A Liturgy of Weeping. So before we open the word of God, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. I thank you for these fathers that are here, that are with us, that are such great examples, that have been so faithful, so good. I pray, God, that um, as we come now into our Father's house in heaven, to hear from him, to hear his word, to hear his instruction, that we would be uh, diligent listeners, that we would open our hearts and minds, and that we would receive uh, what, what you are going to tell us, whether we like it or not. pray that it would shape and mold our faith, that it would encourage and strengthen us and give us hope. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations uh, and, and for the liturgy of weeping. And we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us, Lord, um, how to use this liturgy to better glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I, this happens to me. I'm sure it happens to most of us. You're listening to a person describe their grief, and it is horrible. And you're standing there, and you have no idea how to respond. And if you're anything like me, you try sometimes a little bit. You're like, well, you know, God is still sovereign. God has good things for us. And it just feels weird to talk like that in the midst of someone's grief. Have you ever sat with a mother who has lost a child, a friend who has lost a parent, A child who has read about the Holocaust for the first time in school. Little homeschool kids reading about the Holocaust for the first time. It's quite, it's very difficult to have to explain it to them. Have you stood before weeping and expressions of grief and felt something must be said, but you just couldn't imagine what it was? Well, we know that we are called to come alongside the grief-stricken. This is what the Word of God tells us to do. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is the command of the apostles. This is what they told us to do. And, it ref- and the reason they told us to do it is because it, is, it was the ministry of Jesus Christ. Weeping with those who weep is what Jesus did. We read in John chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Part of Jesus' ministry was to stand amongst mourners and mourn. He was educated in the liturgy of weeping and knew how to come alongside those who were in their grief and bear their burdens with them. The liturgy of weeping is called a lament. In another example, a famous example, Jesus, the Savior of Israel, came to the city of David, the city of Israel's throne and temple, and knew that what would happen to her after it rejected him. He came to Jerusalem, he saw Jerusalem, and he knew what would happen to Jerusalem after it rejected him. The lack of national repentance would lead to destruction, and Jesus knew how to frame his distress and sadness. And this is what he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a lament. Jesus is expressing his grief. He assigns blame for sin. He doesn't shy away from it. He says, this is the sins that were committed, and this is what is going to happen to you because of them. He knows what the city needs, and he, at the end of this lament, gives a sign of hope. He gives them hope in the midst of it, and that that is an important part of lamenting. A third of the Psalms, 59 of the Psalms, there's 150 of them, 59 of them are laments. That's that's a lot. (laughs) Why? Why did David write that many laments? Well, if you read about David, he had a lot to lament in his own life. But he understood it as a spiritual exercise. He understood the cleansing uh, that it gave to his soul to express his grief in this way. And he left us a large catalog of lament psalms to learn, likewise, how to express our grief. God's word instructs us in how to lament, a liturgy of weeping to equip his people in processing their grief and comforting one another in, in their grief. Lamenting can be a communal act of grief. We need a biblical understanding of how to weep with those who are weeping, but we often do not live in close enough community to properly bear one another's burdens. There's reasons. It's hard when we're all so spread out. There's also something about Americans, isn't there, modern Americans? I I don't want to tell them about that. I don't want to bother him. I don't want to burden them. They seem, right, they've... It's odd. I've actually had people use my own kids as an excuse for why they didn't tell me about something terrible in their life. Well, you you have six kids. You're pretty busy. That seems weird. (laughs) Use my kids that way. We don't like talking about these things, do we? Surgery, illnesses, miscarriages, prodigal children, war, terrorist attacks, pandemics, national disasters of all kinds. The loss of jobs, anxiety, depression. We don't like to tell people about these things. These are all reasons for communities and the children of God to weep together, though. We are stoic, private, self-sufficient, and prideful, fearful, modern American Christians who know very little about the act of lamenting. Not that there aren't things to lament. (laughs) It's just not part of our American culture, is it? Once, days of fasting and prayer were part of our civic practices, but secularism has ascended and pushed them out. Not to mention that it isn't considered manly to cry. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm one of these. I think I saw my father cry three times. He's a sensitive guy, but it's just, right? It's just not, it's not what men do. Men don't cry. Privacy is also an idol. And, and this is one that I think is hard for us to understand. But um, privacy, you know, privacy is the cornerstone of why we have abortion in this country. The right to privacy. Now, you'll be fascinated to find out that if you go to the Constitution and flip through it, there actually is no right to privacy. This is one of the things um, I I would like to talk more about in another sermon, but they're called penumbra laws. That's a weird word, penumbra laws. And the justices of the Supreme Court, in all their vast wisdom, held up the Constitution and shined a flashlight on it, and the shadows it cast on the wall are rights that are there but aren't expressly written down. This is literally the explanation. They're like, oh, you know, um, because of these other rights, if you hold it up just right like a puppet, you shine a flashlight on it, you see that you have the right to privacy. 
And the right to privacy is the cornerstone of the whole thing. You take away the right to privacy, right? My body, my choice. Don't ask, don't tell. Think about it. This is, this is, and, and we don't buy into that, but haven't we bought into the idol of privacy? It, we are not unaffected by it. We think because we don't participate in abortion in any way that we're saved from it, but we're not. Privacy is an idol. And this is what happens. We suffer in silence. The other thing that happens is, is or, you know, we become Job's counselors because we don't know what we're doing. Now, Job's counselors come along, and there's Job, and he's processing his grief properly, I'm going to say. And then his buddies start um, explaining all the things that they think he needs to know. Hey, you should understand how sin works, and you should understand God's sovereignty. And they tell him a whole bunch, and they start arguing with him. And it's 40 chapters of the book of Job because they argue and argue and argue with him. But how much better would Job have been served if they came and sat and held his hand and simply wept with him? So what we often do, we become Job's counselors, and I think it's simply from a lack of knowing what to do. We just don't know what to do. We take the social media and politicize whatever the latest outrage is for our own pet issues. This is another thing. Have you guys ever noticed this, right? A school shooting happens, and it, here it comes. I know it. I'm going to scroll on Facebook. I'm going to see it. Oh, there's the guy. Why are all you liberals crying about these dead kids? Abortion. <laughs> he said it. He said it. Have you guys ever seen this? I may even have done this myself. But when, when we have th- when there are, is grief, we don't, know how to, we don't know how to deal with it. We give a bunch of bad counsel. We go on social media, and we rant and rave. But, but how often do we simply sit down with one another and cry? To better serve one another and our neighbors, to equip us for the work of ministry, we have to come to understand what lamenting is and restore to the church the liturgy of weeping that we so desperately need. Now, first I want to deal with a few definitions. What is liturgy? Liturgy is a corporate religious service rendered to God by his people. Now, that sounds like a textbook definition, doesn't it? Well, a liturgy is a process, right? It's, it's an order of worship. We have one here. The, the way it works is Joel calls us in, uh, and, and we respond by singing. And then someone tells us to confess. We confess our sins. We hear from God's word that we, we are forgiven. And then we stand up and we respond to God in song. And this is what a liturgy is. It's a call and response where God says and does things, and then we respond. Liturgy is a set of words and actions that shape our corporate worship. And that is what I mean by a liturgy of weeping. There's got to be um, pr- some process to the grief. There's got to be some process to the weeping. Otherwise, as I've said, we fall into all of these traps that modern Christians have fallen into. Now, what is a lament then? Well, a lament is a song of mourning or sorrow. Laments may, may be occasioned by bereavement or personal trouble, national disaster, or the judgment of God. Lament psalms, comprising approximately one-third of the book of Psalms, are the most numerous category of psalms in the Bible. They are also called complaints. These poems contain the poet's strategy for mastering a crisis, and they can be either private, as in Psalms 3 and 4, or communal, as in Psalms 12 and 44. Lament psalms are a response arising from a specific occasion in the life of the author or his community. Common occasions for lament psalms are attack by personal enemies and warfare, disease, drought, the burden of sin, and guilt. Lament psalms are used on fast days 
or in times of grave danger. The Book of Lamentations actually was sung corporately on particular holidays. We are not accustomed to this biblical form of poetry. We're not really accustomed to any form of biblical poetry. But I think it is time that we learn how to express ourselves in this way. In private and public prayer, in processing our grief, our fear, our suffering, our pain, this is what the scriptures tell us to do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn will be comforted. Christ will wipe away every tear. He himself stood at the tomb of Lazarus and wept. But how can Jesus wipe away tears if we never weep? If we never weep, how is he going to wipe away the tears? There are certainly things to weep over and plenty of people to weep with. Okay. This is another important thing. God intends for us to grieve because it purifies us like a refining fire. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And we see this all around us. Worldly grief produces death. Look at the grief that people are suffering in this world right now, and it's killing them. It's killing communities. It, it's killing people. Right? They're trying to process their grief right now in the streets of Seattle. You know, 19 people have died in the riots since George Floyd died. 19 people. Because they don't, right? There will be blood. There's always going to be blood. Someone has to die to atone for the grief of, their, of the people, and it's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be others. And so the world doesn't know. It processes its grief and just produces more death. Who is going to show the world the kind of grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret? Now, I'm going to get into some technical stuff now before we, right, this is the teaching portion. Laments are actually poems. Lament psalms are a fixed form consisting of five elements. And these are the elements I'm going to repeat over and over and over and over again because I want you to learn them. First, five, this is the first of the five elements. Lament psalms ordinarily begin with an invocation or introductory cry to God. Step one, cry out to God. You can use his name or not. You can say what, how great he is or not. You say something to him, about him. Number two, the lament or complaint. This is the part where you define the crisis, the thing to which the author is respond, responding to. Right? I have cancer. My wife has died. You can even get more specific because if you read the lament psalms, it's actually some it, right modern Christians. It makes us a little nervous. David's like, "You took my wife. You did this. You allowed that." He expresses it and he lays blame. He gives blame where blame is due. You allowed my enemies to destroy me. You allowed me to lay in bed and weeping all night long until there's not a drop of water in my body. This is the way that he talks to God. Now, I think we could all, I think this would be good for us to talk to him this way. This is the prophetic voice. Is it possible that we're going to say something stupid? Probably. Does he care? No. Does he want us to express ourselves? Yes. Right? This is, I mean... Uh, my two-year-old in the car this morning said, right, right before we're all about to get out, he says, let's pray. And no one understood a word he said. I didn't understand a word. I understood amen. Uh, but it was a lengthy prayer. Peter had a lot on his mind. And, and, and this is the kind, right? And, and it's delightful. And this is it like it when we pray. 
God knows what's going on. But what he wants is for us to come and humble ourselves and lower ourselves and express ourselves honestly. Right? How does Jesus respond to people who say, I believe, help my unbelief? If you can. Right? When people say the things to him, does he take it personally? No. Okay. So step three. Let's go back because we've got to make sure that we learn these. First, invocation. Invoke the name of God. Then tell him what your complaint is. Then petition him for how you would like him to fix it. <laughs> Most lament psalms then contain a statement of confidence in God. I know you will because you, you did, da, 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 and you can list a history. Right? How often do the prophets and, and David talk about Egypt and what happened there? Yeah, you're going to do it this time just like you did it last time. Then, at the very end, number five, is a vow to praise God. Now, this isn't one of those, if you take care of this for me, I promise I will make sure I don't miss church this year. It's not that kind of promise of worship. It's a vow to praise God. I will praise you no matter what. Here's the problem. Here's how I'd like you to fix it. Either way, you're going to find me at church on Sunday, lifting your name up and praising you. Now, it is obvious that the lament psalm thus contains a reversal and even a repudiation. The poet begins by asserting that his situation is hopeless. That's generally how they start. Oh God, there is nothing that can be done for me. And by the end of the, end of the lament, he's saying exactly what God is going to do for him. So you see almost this reversal of his emotions as he's lamenting. Help, uh, laments help us move from the human view of impossibility to God's view of our situation. The unifying element of such a poem is the crisis to which the poet is responding. Right? This is what Jesus says. What's uh, impossible for men is possible for God. And when you lament, you say, I don't understand what is going on. It is impossible for me. And by the time you get to the end, you're praising him for what he's going to do. Because, and you believe it. The Book of Lamentations teaches us how these elements work together in a liturgy that gives voice to grief. Now, just for a little background here, what the Book of Lamentations, um, it's the despair and dismay experienced by the nation of Judah at her defeat by the Babylonians in 586. A little history lesson now. So in 586, God had been fed up with everything that the Judah was doing and not doing, and he promised back in the Book of Deuteronomy, if you fail to live according to my word, according to my law, faithfully with me, this is what's going to happen, and he lists a whole bunch of things. By 586 B.C., he said, okay, I've had enough. You're now going to experience all these things. And it was bad. It was really bad. The Babylonians would generally, when they defeated an army, skin them and plaster the skins on the outside of, of the fortress, on the walls. Um, they, they are a nasty, nasty group. Lamentations consists of five poems that express grief and bereavement over God's judgment on, on Israel's sin and for the sin itself. They don't just grieve over the fact that this has happened to them. They grieve over what got them there. God had unleashed his enemies on his own people. Think about that for a moment. God unleashed Israel's enemies against God's people, Israel, leading to the destruction of Jerusalem and even the temple. The first four chapters of Lamentations are what they call an acrostic poem. Now, an acrostic poem is a poem in which the first letter of each line spells a word or is the letter of the alphabet. 
So if you want to write an acrostic, you have a message like, I love my wife. And then you write a poem where the letter of the, right, is the first letter of each line. I love my wife. It spells something. Or you take the alphabet A to Z and you write a line of poem, poetry, that start, the first letter is that letter. This is an acrostic. So what you have are these acrostic poems making up the Book of Lamentations. Chapter 3 is noteworthy because each of the 22 Hebrew letters is used for three successive one-line verses. One purpose of an acrostic is to aid in memorization, right? If you know your alphabet, it's easier to memorize the lines of an acrostic poem. This carefully formed, highly artistic style has a further purpose, though, to encourage completeness in the expression of grief. The confession of sin and the instilling of hope is complete. Literally, they cover it from A to Z. It's an opportunity to get everything out. I'm going to just, I'm going to get it all out. A to Z, I'm going to cover the entire thing. And there's a wholeness to the grief expressed this way. The acrostic speaks to the eye, not the ear, and conveys an idea, not merely a feeling. When you see it, you see completeness and wholeness. The kind of completeness and wholeness you're hoping to accomplish after your grief is over. One biblical scholar stresses the purifying role of the acrostic to bring about a complete cleansing of the conscience through a total confession of sin. Also, by limiting the number of poems, uh, when you write poetry, actually, the problem with modern verse, I'm just going to, this is me on my soapbox for a moment. The, modern, the problem with modern open free verse is that there's no limits. You can do whatever you want. Now, you take somebody like that and you, and you sit them down and say, okay, now you've got to write a sonnet and it's got to be exactly this many lines, it's got to be exactly this many meter, you know, the meter has to look a certain way, the rhythm has to be a certain way, that's actually a lot harder, that takes a lot more skill. Something like this contains the grief. How often have you guys been grieved and there's just no bounds to it? It's just unfettered, like a modern <laughs> free verse poem. There's no boundaries. What is good about an acrostic is it really just focuses the grief in. It gets it all out. It lets you express yourself in a creative way uh, and in a more interesting way than if you just are going crazy with it. There's also a lot of, uh, you know, one of the things is expressing ourselves in a way that is metaphorical and poetic. This is Lamentations 1.1. Listen to this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Now that's describing the city of Jerusalem. That's a very beautiful way of expressing grief, isn't it? It gives it some nobility. It gives it some humanity. It gives it something a little bit more beautiful and more lasting than, I feel terrible! Chapter 3 is an individual lament rather than a funeral dirge containing elements typical of this category. A figurative description of suffering, an affirmative that God will answer the supplicant's plea, and a climax of the book. So let, let us now look at some very specific things in the Book of Lamentations. Because why are they grieving? How do they express their grief? It helps us learn how to process our own grief. Lamentations gives the church a framework for understanding her own suffering and how God wants us to respond to him in the midst of it. God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives and nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven 
to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Lamentations 3.38. It is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. See, what, what I love about this is the same idea that Job had. Job is standing there, and they come to him one by one, and they tell him the tragic thing that this tribe and that tribe and the east wind have done to him. And does he sit down, and does he, does he cry out against individual tribes? My enemies are these people. No. Job says in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows exactly who's done this to him. And in Lamentations, it's no different. The first chapter, five times they mention that God has done this to them. Do they blame the Babylonians? They blame themselves. They lay blame where blame is due. Right? This is a way of talking to God that I think is much more mature than what most of us do. You did this to me. You, the God of heaven, visited this upon me. You put this tumor in my body. You deprived me of my spouse. That is the way the prophets talk to God. That is what God wants his children to grow up to do. Don't hide. Don't shuffle your feet. Right? What do we think of a young man whose father comes to talk to him and, and he kind of, he's sort of hunkered down... Eh. And he's, a, he's fear, right? Stand up. Be a man. Express yourself. And this is what God wants us to do in our grief. Even in our grief, he wants us to recognize that he is in charge. And it's very cleansing and very helpful to do so. Sin is the trap that leads to imprisonment and ultimately spiritual death, and God will send circumstances to turn us away from this, this end, or our sin will entrap us, Right? What, what God does, sin is a trap, it imprisons us, and God will either can, right, ratchet up the heat and, and get our, try to get our attention, or eventually what he'll do is say, okay, you know, I've, I've waited long enough. I've been as patient as I'm going to be, and you need to learn your lesson now. This is what it says in Lamentations 1.14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fall. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. He took away all protection. He took away all strength. He, he took the sin and, and, and made it a yoke and a burden that they now must bear. Jeremiah knows where to lay the blame. The grief they are suffering is of their own making. And they know that it's God himself who visited, visited them with this grief. God disciplines his children and his church for their sins. Now, here's an example that they, <clears throat> it's very rare in the Bible. Can you guys think, how many, how often does God actually stop the worship of his church? How often does he actually prevent the people of God from worshiping him in the location and time and place and way, manner, that he has prescribed? How often does that happen? That is a very rare thing. One of the things that's going on right now in the United States is whether we did it to ourselves or not, we could argue about that later. One way or the other, the church ceased for weeks to worship God in the manner in which he described, prescribed. That is not a good sign. That is not a good sign. Lamentations 118. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. 
the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. Why? Why did he do this? Why does he do such things? Right? I've been talking about this for several weeks. Are we just a building? Are we just a meeting on Sunday mornings? Why would God do this? Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So when he ceases the burnt offerings, what is it that he's trying to get them to recognize, to see, to do? That he, he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What is more important to him? Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Mark chapter 12, verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So what's different now? Right? We don't, okay, I understand. We don't have goats out back that I'm going to go and slaughter, and, right? But we have sacrifices. We have a service. We have a liturgy. Why would God stop it unless he's trying to teach his people a very particular lesson? And, and what is so frustrating about all of us in our grief right now about not being able to go to church and do things the normal way is we have not really stopped and turned. Let's go to the Bible and see every instance in which God himself stops the worship of his, his people. And what is it that he's trying to get them to understand? That they're not walking with him. You can go to, the, to church as the day, right? Go to church... You could have gone to church every Sunday for the last seven years and still not be walking with the Lord. Steadfast love. Knowledge of God. Weightier matters of the law. This is what he's trying to wake them up to. There's also in here, in it, right? we cannot forget the imprecatory nature of what is said here. right? Eventually... And imprecatory, this is another form of the Psalms that make people very uncomfortable. This is the uh, God tells his people, his army, to go take all the babies up to the cliff and throw them down on the rocks. And there's at one point a psalm where they sing about this. And, yeah, generally you don't see Joel and I throwing that one up on the, right? That, that's, that's a little grim. And, and a lot of Bibles take those kinds of verses out. It's very confusing, imprecatory psalms. What are, they, what are imprecatory psalms? Who's singing the psalms? Who is, whose word is this? Who is going to crush the enemy in the end if they do not turn to him? What, what we don't want is us personally crying down vengeance from God on high, like, smote them, Lord, for they hateth me. Right? We're not praying that uh, Jay Inslee, Governor Inslee's office, that just a hole opens up underneath him and swallows him. That's not all we're praying. Because this is what you deal with the enemies of God. Convert them, right, which is slaying them with the sword of the Spirit, 
or get them out of the way. And right, and that doesn't. This is, was very confusing in the 80s when people started bombing abortion clinics because they were very confused about who exactly was doing the vengeance. But in the right, they start five times in the first chapter. They mention their own sin that God has done this to them, and then this is what they say at the very end of the chapter, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there was no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you anointed. Now let them be as I am. Let them be as I am. I hope a day comes where the state senate cannot meet. Now, there's a long <laughs> explanation there as the fact that you shouldn't really have standing congresses. They're really bad. Congress is something that's supposed to come into session when you have business to do and then leave again. So may the Lord do to them what they have done to us. May they cease to meet. And, and that, that is a righteous and good prayer. And that's not personal vengeance for the people of God to lift the burden of taxation and statism. I pray that what has happened to us happens to them. And that is a way that is very difficult to pray that way because we either make it personally about us or it doesn't jive with what we think the gospel is. But in the end, what is King Jesus going to do to his enemies? Hug them? Remember I talked about this a few weeks ago. It talks about, right, and the, they will be under his feet because in the, this is an Old Testament idea, an ancient idea is they bring the enemies in and they lay the generals down on the floor and the kings and you walk over and you put your foot on their throat so they know who's the victor. And that's what he's going to do. So praying this way is not a problem for him. Praying this way because you hate people personally is a problem. So we have to be able to express our grief and part of wanting things to change is either they're converted or they get out of our way. Join us or get out of our way. And I do, I pray, as I said earlier this morning, that all of our leaders are converted and come to understand the weight of their office. Now, this is what I like. Right in the middle of the book, actually, right in the center of Lamentations, comes this part, comes the hope, like light in the midst of darkness. It's a very effective, poetic device they've done here. The happy, joyful hope part doesn't come at the very end. It comes right in the midst of the story because that's exactly what the gospel is like. So in the midst of lamentations, when they're bemoaning and crying and weeping and, and expressing their grief, this is the light that shines in the darkness. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39 through 42. Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. He goes on to, in verse 52. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. That is the, that's the gospel. That's the glory. That's the hope. That's the good right in the middle of the darkness. Now, one of the things that is always, <laughs> I have to do, it's my job, 
is I'm constantly having to tell people that it's not as bad as it could be. Right? And that, that, just like when you're hearing someone's grief and you're trying to comfort them, what can actually be very difficult as well is to be like, well, you know, I really, I, I do, I understand, but it really is better than what you deserve. Uh, and the longer I sit here with you in a counseling session, the more convinced I am. <laughs> right? The more we know ourselves. This is, this is what my, my neighbor, uh, he, he and I were standing out in the front yard, and he's now using this phrase that I use. Right? The struggle's real. The struggle's real. Real. I ran out of coffee filters and had to use the one from yesterday. Man, the struggle is real. You know what I'm saying? Remember that time I sprayed myself in the eye with the uh, cologne and it burned the whole way through church when I told you about that? That's like, if that's as bad as my life gets, it's pretty good. Now, you have to be also be very, very careful with this kind of thing because in the midst of someone's really deep grief, this is not the card you play. Well, you know, it's better than you deserve. and Certainly not as bad as it could be. <laughs> well, here's a tissue. But I, I use this, um, you know, in Pakistan, they're using COVID-19 aid to manipulate and, con- and, and, and force people through starvation to convert to Islam. They're torturing Christians using COVID aid, right? How bad is it for us? Anyway, okay. Lamentations chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. This is the really grim parts of the Bible. This is what it says. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled the fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Now, he said in Deuteronomy that is what he's going to do. He said, you will, your wives will eat their own children. It's going to be that bad. When he rises up and attempts to get our attention, oughtn't we to listen as quickly as possible? Do we want him, right, to go all the way? Do we want him to just release us and say, listen, I've been trying to pull America back. I've been trying to pull the church back. I've been trying to get your attention now for generation after generation after generation. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to rise up and back completely away and let you see what sin can actually do to a community. It's not as bad as it can be. And this is something that we have to recognize, right? As much as that grief hurts us, as much as losing a family member hurts, as much as right, losing your job, losing your financial stability, as much as what's going on right now with 19 people being killed in the midst of all of these riots and protests, it could be much worse. And God has not removed his hand completely from us, and for that we ought to give a great deal of thanks. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. It's not bad to, re- to long for the old days. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19 through 33. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, 
Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may he, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheeks to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. See, this is part of these things that I have done today. Are they go together? When we look out on this world and our hearts are filled with grief, when we pick up the Pacific Northwest history book and we read about Japanese internment, our hearts ought to be filled with grief. And in not knowing how to process it, what we end up doing is having this idea that everybody needs to start repenting. We don't know what to do with our grief. And, and part of what ends up happening is we want a whole bunch of people to repent of things that they, don't, that they ought not to repent of. What we've lost is, you know what, this looks awful. What you guys are experiencing is terrible. The grief in this country right now is unbelievable. I ought to sit down and lament. You know where to lay the blame. You know who to cry out to. You know how good it's going to be after God restores it. You, you have hope for the situation. It's very strange. It's, just, it's so strange that the, the language of restitution and justice is being hijacked, and, and it's being applied in all kinds of ways that it does not... All right, I'm, I'm, I watched a video, Chaz, or Chop, or whatever it is now, Capitol Hill, as we used to call it. Here's this African-American man who's extraordinarily grief-stricken. And after a long kind of rambling speech where you just see his heart on his sleeve, he says, okay, now all you white people, take out money, and you give 10 bucks to every black person you know that you see here on the street. Go around and give him 10, and him 10, and her 10, and her 10, and... and Make up for all the sin. Now, does that man need to grieve? Yes. And what does he want? He wants justice and restitution from people who don't owe it to anyone. And, and the church, who's supposed to be ministers of reconciliation, is listening and seeing all of this going on, and we don't know how to approach people and say, listen, let me grieve with you. Let me process this with you. Let me come along and mourn and weep with you because I know how. There's a liturgy to it. We, we're not grasping for straws here. When terrible things like this happen, this is how we're supposed to respond. We cry out to God. We ex say exactly what it is that's happened to us that's terrible. And we lament it. And we complain about it. And then we look for hope. And we express our knowledge that God is in charge, that God is going to fix it, that God is going to restore. And, and you have this process. This is actually an effective thing. There is a man, I don't... I don't necessarily encourage you to consume everything by him. But he, his name is Desmond Tutu. It's a, it's a great name, by the way. Desmond Tutu. And he was a, a bishop, and he helped South Africa reconcile after apartheid came to an end. And you go in towns in South Africa, and he had something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. What a name. This guy knew how to name things. And what they would do is not just pay restitution, but they would actually have people in the community sit down and, uh, and, and confess to one another and restore one another and fellowship. And there's towns you go to where here is a guy who used to be a rapist and a murderer, and here is some of his victims living next to him, and they live in a community together, and they shop in the same stores, and there's been restoration. And that is a Christian idea because Desmond understood he needed to help them grieve. He needed to help them take all that anger and malice and hurt and pain 
and deal with it. And what we see is a nation that has, is not dealing with its grief. All right. Invocation, complaint, supplication, a statement of confidence in God, a vow to praise God. Now, this, uh, this is how I'm going to end is with two examples. Two examples. What does this actually look like? Right? You can look at the book of Lamentations. You, 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 you can learn these five things. Invocation, complaint, supplication, statement of confidence, vow to praise God. But twice, twice now, I know that we have experienced financial destruction in, in, in people's 401ks. This happened back in 2008 or whatever it was, and it's recently happened. And people have seen wealth that they had, that they were counting on, disappear. And this is a lament for the loss of retirement funds. Let's pray. Ready? Because I know some of you in here have actually experienced this. So we're going to pray and lament right now for this. Ready? Bow with me. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. All wealth is yours. The cattle on a thousand hills are your sovereign possession, and you feed every beast. You water every fawn. The fruit of field and the womb are yours. I have lost the provision that I have stored up for myself. I am left bereft of monetary comfort. I am destitute. I trusted in the machinations of bankers and investors, and I am betrayed by bad financial deals and misplaced hope in financial security. Lord, may you restore my fortunes and care for me even when I cannot see how you will or with what you will sustain me. May I trust you and may I not curse your name in my great need. I know you hear my prayers because Jesus promised that everything I ask in his name would be done. You are a faithful friend and a covenant-keeping God. I will praise you in want as I praised you in wealth. I give you thanks for these circumstances that drive me deeper into fellowship and dependence upon you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the book of Lamentations gave voice to suffering. The lament psalms give voice to suffering. We are in circumstances that are unprecedented in modern times. Though you may not be suffering, and the suspension of church services may not have interrupted your life all that much, However, it is a grievous thing for many, and it should be a grievous thing for everyone. Far worse is the looming economic destruction that is coming. But the biggest tragedy of all will be if these events fail to get our attention. National lament is different than national confession. We can lament the grief and sorrow, the judgment and discipline the universal church and our country is experiencing without having to take personal responsibility for it. Lamentations 3.28 let him sit alone in silence. I would like all of you to go from here. And this week, I want you to sit in silence. And I'm going to give you some things to think about, but I know there are things in your life that you need to process through lamenting. Ponder the sheer weight of fear and death, uncertainty, brokenness, hopelessness, pain experienced by those who were sick from COVID-19, those who lost loved ones to the viruses, those who lost jobs, those who committed suicide and their families, those who died alone, those who lied, those who covered up, those who blame-shifted and suffered from bureaucratic incompetence and from outright negligence, those smashed and broken businesses. 19 people in the riots following George Floyd's death have died. The assaults, the lost income, the violence, the pain in response to real injustice. The fatherless, the leaderless people 
will chant and kneel because they need something higher than themselves to serve, to justify them, to give them peace and hope. Consider the trauma. Consider the 400,000 COVID deaths. That's the official number. In that same time, 20 million babies were aborted. Consider the trauma. Give voice to your grief. Come alongside one another and grieve with one another. Weep with one another. Look at what's going on in this world. You know, you know you're not responsible for it. But who is? And we are his ministers of reconciliation. And this is a means for us to reconcile. Now, I'm going to end with one last lament. I don't want you to bow with me, and I will... I will pray this and we will be done. But I want you guys to take up the scriptures and start thinking about the ministry of reconciliation beyond the very basics of the gospel. That is part of what this is, this is all about. Let's go further up and further in. Now, this is a lament for a friend who has lost a baby. Let's pray. Jesus commanded his followers not to hold the little children back from him. And Lord, we longed to hold this little child, and yet you, in your frightening and unsearchable wisdom, have called them home to yourself before we were ready. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are bereft of a child we did not get to meet or hear or hug or feed. The reward of the womb you have taken from our friend. Give, my dear sister, the peace that passes understanding, comfort, and joy in your ways, which are so different and so much harder than our ways. Heal her body and soul from this loss. You are the great physician, we know. Hagar cried out to you as the God who hears us in our distress, and we are brought low by our distress, and so comfort, comfort your people. Your word says that joy cometh in the morning. Let our tears of mourning turn to cries of joy, for we know that we shall meet this little one in your presence. Let us hope and yearn and rejoice and praise that you are the God who opens every womb. In Christ, amen. Invocation, complaint, supplication, statement of confidence, a vow to praise. You are the ministers of reconciliation that this world needs. You are the ministers of reconciliation that God has called to your families, your homes, your neighborhoods, your places of business, and there is grief everywhere. So go and cry out to God, lament, complain to him. He will listen. He hears you. You know that he does. And amen.